Welcome to Dental Brain Crops. I'm your host, Chelsea Myers, and today I'm joined with Perrin Desports of Polaris Healthcare Partners. Perrin, welcome to the show, and thank you for being here. Hey, Chelsea, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. I've really been looking forward to this for a while, so I appreciate it. Me too. I'm so excited. Well, just if you would, just give our audience a, a little bit of a history on you and then some on Polaris as well. Yeah, happy to happy to do it. Um, and I'll try to be brief, but I mean, you could sort of say I was born into the business side of dentistry. Um, I was fourth generation in a dental distribution company, family owned company uh, called Thompson Dental Company that was started in 1899 by my great grandfather, James Perrin Thompson. And my wow. father was, yeah. So, I mean, there. It, it, I'm sure you've read a lot, knowing the work that you do, you've read a lot mm -hmm. about um, businesses and multi-family uh, generational businesses, and most of them don't survive the second generation. It's a right. very, very few that get through three, and and even less, obviously, they get through four. And so I joined that business shortly after college in 1995. My dad was president and CEO. My grandfather was chairman of the board. Um, I guess I'm kind of biased, but I would like to think that it was a very well-run business and, you know, was growing very quickly in, in the world of dental distribution. Um, it was about a $100 million run rate in revenue. Um, we had 13 or 14 sales offices, if memory serves me correct, from Baltimore through um, Orlando. And the company was headquartered in Columbia, South Carolina, where I grew up. Um, it was growing quickly, employed about 400 people or so, and, and really had um, a, lot of, a lot of upside to it. Um, the challenge in a family-held business is that it's an illiquid uh, investment, so to speak. And my father has uh, two uh, younger sisters, neither of whom worked in the business, nor did their husbands, nor did any of their children. And upon my grandfather's ultimate demise, the, his estate was set up to be share and share alike. Um, so mm. I wasn't a math major undergrad, but I can do some quick fractions <laughs> and figure out that, you know, if my dad is president and CEO, but only owns a third of the business and two other people each own a third who don't work in the business, don't want to work in the business and aren't going to work in the business, there comes a point where you kind of get outvoted, you know? And so right. I learned a lot about ownership, equity, family businesses, um, leadership. Family business is never what you think it is from the outside looking in. Um, people <laughs> people on the outside think it's one thing, sort of being behind the curtain, I would tell you it's, uh, it's significantly different and it has a lot of challenges. And I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of families um, our family-held businesses don't last. But in any event, um, you know, in two, April of 2002, we made the decision to sell that business to Patterson, not for financial or operational reasons. Like I say, the company was growing quite nicely, but due to that poor equity transition planning. And it was a great acquisition for Patterson. They still look back on it very fondly 20-some-odd years later. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to kind of parlay that into um, a 15-year career where I ran three different businesses for them. And I always say I would have loved to have worked for my dad longer than the seven years that I did, but I also had a wonderful opportunity at Patterson that I probably wouldn't have gotten if I had stayed in the family business. And they gave me a lot of opportunity at a really early stage. I ran three different businesses. I had full P&L responsibility from the age of about 31 on, and I didn't know mm -hmm. what that meant at the time or else I probably wouldn't have taken the job, but I did and, and did pretty well. And um, ran Richmond, Virginia, Metro, New York, New Jersey, and then Charlotte, North Carolina for the last seven years of that career. And I was in my mid forties, um, uh, you know, had the brand Charlotte branch had won multiple awards, uh, you know, was kind of at the, the top of that career for me. And I had kind of an inflection point. Um, and, and I was, re I was newly married at the time and my wife and I had a, a newly born daughter and, and my wife is an ophthalmologist, part of a, a great group here in Charlotte. And, you know, I, I wasn't going, we weren't going to uproot the family and move to Minneapolis. You know, mm -hmm. I, I wasn't going to do that for a lot of reasons. Growing up in South Carolina, I'm not <laughs> built for that, but but yeah. I certainly wasn't going to do that then. And at the same time, I didn't want to be a, a regional and uh, live on an airplane, you know, pack a bag on a Monday morning and come home on Friday, that kind of thing. So 
you start thinking it through and, and you're like, well, Perrin, that sort of sounds like a you problem, not a Patterson problem, you know? So um, I decided to, to leave Patterson um, in January of 2017 and launched a venture with a couple of uh, industry colleagues who I knew called Tusk Partners. Uh, and Tusk was a, a, a startup venture in, in early 17 uh, that focused our efforts exclusively with group dental practices, helping them uh, to start, grow, and, and sell their businesses. Uh, DeWalker Sinha, um, one of those uh, co-founding partners, and I decided to leave Tusk back in March of 2021, so about a year and a half ago, to launch mm -hmm. Polaris. Um, we, we replicated that business at Polaris, and I know we'll dig into some of the dynamics around group practices and everything, but you know, the, the group practice space that we operate in um, that we call doctor founded and debt funded. It's the entrepreneurial uh, entrepreneurs who happen to be dentists that want to own multiple locations. So it's pre-private equity, but it's beyond one to two locations. It's the fastest growing segment of the space. Um, it's the space that arguably needs the most business guidance, uh, strategic guidance, and that's a lot of what we do. And if those entrepreneurs build their business to some level of success and they want to take some chips off the table and either sell it outright or find a, a capital partner like a private equity group, we're equipped to do just that. And, and our longer term vision for Polaris and the reason we call it Polaris Healthcare Partners and not Polaris Dental Partners is that we think if we develop that kind of suite of services in dentistry, the core business that we know really, really well, we can maybe replicate it into other healthcare verticals like ophthalmology or optometry or podiatry or behavioral health, or there are a lot of others that are kind of physician practice model that have some of the same um, characteristics of uh, the dental industry. So that's a little bit of a longer term vision. I hope that was concise enough not to be boring <laughs> for your audience, but um, not boring that's my at story. all. Yeah, not boring at all. Thank you. That's good background. So help me know you said it's, um, the fastest growing yet in need of the most guidance and support. So talk to me more about the specifics of those smaller groups. Yeah, you know, it's funny because um, I think a lot of this really uh, started germinating and we started seeing more of it after the, the economic collapse, the housing collapse of 08 and 09. I mean, I know the trends were underway at the time. You obviously had Heartland Dental and Pacific Dental and Aspen and North American Dental Group and Dental Care Alliance and all those that are private equity backed enterprise level groups. They've been in existence for a long time. But I think really in the late, you know, early 20 teens, late 20 aughts, you you um, you started seeing a lot of entrepreneurs who who, you know, there always have been specialists that own multiple locations, but they they kind of split their time in those locations. Mm -hmm. And then you started seeing a lot of general dentists that wanted to own more than one location and they wanted to employ associates or, or have multiple partners in them. And to their credit, they saw that they wanted to build a business that wasn't 100% dependent upon their clinical skill set. You know, okay. dentists to a great degree make a good bit of money, but most of them are the economic engine of the business. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if they take a vacation, if they want to go to Europe for 90 days, if, uh, if they go out on maternity leave or something like that, the business isn't generating revenue. And, mm -hmm. and all of us who are entrepreneurs um, didn't become entrepreneurs to build a job. We became <laughs> entrepreneurs, you know, to build a business yeah. and, and ultimately be able to make money when we're not necessarily practicing our craft. And I think a lot of people started seeing that, you know, going back a decade or more. And then you kind of got this wave of, you know, a couple of people did it and did it successfully. And then you started hearing about these things like private equity investment or the exit side of it. And then it was, holy cow, wait, I know that person. I went to dental school with that person. That person just sold their business for what? You know, and now it was on everybody's radar. And well, if they're, you know, I went to dental school with that guy and he wasn't that bright. So if he did it, I'm going to do it too, you know, and, right. and just because everybody else is doing it doesn't mean you should do it. And mm -hmm. that's never the right reason to, to, to build a business. So I would also say that there were a lot of, there are a lot of dental practice management consultants that work 
um, at an operational level, clinic level, with a lot of solo dentists um, on case acceptance and scheduling efficiencies and hygiene retention and culture building and a lot of these other things that are really mission critical at a, at a practice level, but that's not scale. You have to have that to be successful in a solo practice. Um, but what gets you from one or two locations to eight to 10 has to be something different uh, or it is something mm -hmm. different. And so we saw, um, you know, a void in the marketplace in terms of um, strategic guidance, how to use bank funds to grow, how to create equity opportunities for associates. How do you buy or build businesses and not make fatal mistakes along the way, literally stepping on a landmine? And so mm -hmm. that was the thing that nobody was solving for these entrepreneurs. And so DeWalker and I really felt like, you know, we had worked at corporate America companies, you know, and we had built businesses and he was, while I was involved in distribution, he's in, he was involved in healthcare lending. So he kind of saw it from the banking side of things. And, and we just decided to say, look, okay, somebody's got to help these entrepreneurs at a minimum, not make fatal mistakes in their early stages. And if we can just show them what not to do and maybe accelerate their learning curve a little bit, they have a better opportunity for success. And, and what we know in terms of being entrepreneurs ourselves is, is how to build and scale a business. And that's, that's our primary focus for the, that core client. And then the ancillary focus is the transactional side upon finding a capital partner or exiting the business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you, you touched on some really important things there. And one of the things that came to mind is, you know, when you're looking around and you're like, I went to school with that person and they just sold for that amount. It brought to mind how many times I've heard somebody say, you know, my dental buddy just did this. So therefore, he's my consultant on how to do that. <laughs> and do you see that too? Yeah, I mean, that that can work sometimes. Um, sometimes. Just like you say, yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, as antithetical as this may sound, when somebody comes to us and asks us about, you know, building a group practice, we try to talk them out of it. And I okay. know that's stupid for somebody who owns a business that helps them grow. Like you, your first order of business is to land a client, not like talk them out of doing what you do, you know? <laughs> I mean, it was a lot, it would be like going to a dentist and a dentist telling you, Chelsea, don't worry about brushing your teeth. It's not, you don't need to come back for your hygiene appointments, you know, just when your tooth falls out, then come to see me. Like that would be stupid, you know? So who, right. who builds a business this way? But, I, you know, I think the reason we kind of take that approach is because we know how hard it is. Um, mm -hmm. It is not a journey for the faint of heart. And we've seen, um, you know, people create a lot of failure in partnerships. Um, mm -hmm. And we've seen a lot of people create a lot of um, unnecessary stress and anxiety because, for example, they, they overpaid for a business they wanted to buy. Um, it's not generating the returns that they thought it would or their characteristics that they didn't identify in the due diligence phase that led half the staff to walk off or something like that. You know, the bank's going to get paid. You may not, mm -hmm. but the bank will. And so now we see that, well, I was making $300,000 personal income in my core practice. It was going really, really great. And now I own three locations and I'm making two and a quarter. Like, how is that possible? You know, right. so so these are the things that every business um, we take kind of a unique approach to every business because we really want to understand what that entrepreneur wants out of the business, what their expectations are and, and what the time frame is. And, and we quantify mm -hmm. that. A lot of what we do is analytically driven and financial model based. So. You can have the greatest vision in the world, but if I put it into a spreadsheet and the numbers don't add up, then we got to adjust something. So when you, when you, going back to your question about, I got a buddy who did it and they were successful. So now they're, they're my consultant. Well, they're successful. Give them credit for that. But you may not want to build the same business that they did the way they did it. Or you might not be predisposed to want to take the risk that they did along the way 
yours, your outcome might be of totally different expectations than theirs. And that's why there's, this is not McDonald's. There's not a cookbook. Okay. I mean, Uh there, there, everything is slightly different. Every market's slightly different, you know, and you got challenges all across the board and how you solve them can be somewhat unique to the founder and what their predispositions are. So it's not a, it's not a formulaic (laughs) approach that, you know, wash, rinse, repeat, and you'll have success. I mean, it really needs Mm -hmm. to be a lot of forethought, a lot of gut check, a lot of face in the mirror tests around what's your stress tolerance? How much debt do you want to take on? Uh, How many hours a week are you going to work? What do you want your role to be? Clinical, leadership, combination of both. Is this a build for exit business or is it a lifestyle business that generates, you know, a million dollars in passive income? Um, Do you want to own it all? Keep it small? Do you want to have multiple partners? Herd the cats? You know, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of different uh, aspects to this. And you just, you think about like that decision tree analysis of all the variables you need to work through, it would probably be better to try to work through a lot of those up front so you know what you're building versus just taking each one of them in isolation as they present themselves. Yep. That makes so much sense. And you hit on exactly where I was going with that because um, what I see, and I'm sure you see this too, is two things happen. Either there's a lack of clarity around what is actually wanted for a number of reasons, maybe not even asking ourselves the right questions, not having the right data, um, or maybe you do know what you want, but there's not a lot of clarity around your reasons. And so we make these emotional-based decisions or impulsive decisions. For the, It's in alignment with your goal, but it's bad timing or it's poor, you know, it's not the right opportunity. You're 100% correct. And I know the work that you do and, and being uh, um, uh, as close with your clients as you are, um, you know, Ego is a bad motivator to build a business, okay? And I mean, look, none of us do what we do for free. I'm every bit as ego-driven as you are. You know, we like Mm -hmm. the trappings of success. We like to see our name in lights and and all that other kind of stuff, right? I get it. Mm -hmm. I mean, if if you don't have an ego, you're probably not going to be a successful entrepreneur. I'm not sure about that, but that's probably (laughs) the case. But but at the same time, you get this... um, you know, if you're comparing yourself against somebody who's already had like an exit, for example, um, Mm -hmm. and and they're all bragging at the 19th hole on the golf course after a couple of beers about (laughs) the transaction value and the multiples of millions and, and, you know, well, I'm going to do that too. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of ground between probably where you are and what that finish line might look like. And again, being as kind of analytically oriented as we are, when we start, when somebody says, hey, Perrin, I've got three locations generating a half a million dollars in EBITDA, and I want to build a business um, that I'm going to exit for, you know, a net $20 million walkaway number in five years, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, I say, okay, that, that sounds great to me. Let's see what the numbers say. And then we model it out. And the model says, well, based on where you are right now and the amount of debt funds you're going to take on and the characteristics type of business you're going to buy to yield some type of transaction that pays off debt, pays off taxes, and puts $20 million in your bank account. And to do it in five years, all you have to do is buy or build 18 practices a year. How does that sound? You know, Uh and then all of a sudden they kind of get like the deer in the headlights look, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's the reality check. Okay. So is the, is the vision off or is the goal uh, unrealistic or is the time frame unrealistic? You Mm -hmm. know, you can build a business that's a $20 million exit or whatever you want but you might not be able to build it in five years based on where you are and the realistic assumptions around that growth trajectory. So we, Mm -hmm. that kind of hard, you know, cold glass of water in the face, the hard and fast reality that's like, okay, we're, we're just modeling stuff on a spreadsheet. You know, now's the Mm -hmm. time to check the ego at the door to say, is this what we're committing to, you -hmm. know, and do we think it's realistic? If it's not, then what do we need to adjust? 
you know, what is realistic? And that's where you kind of bring down the temperature in the room a little bit. And people tend to put their ego aside and say, okay, I didn't tell you I'm also practicing clinically four days a week. You know, well, okay, <laughs> you know, why don't we address that <laughs> and, and start working up from it? So I just, I think that type of guidance around, you know, on a white sheet of paper, anything's possible, but it doesn't mean it's realistic given certain constraints. So what are the constraints? What are we working with? How do we want this to end up? Um, and what are your real goals in life? And oh, by the way, how does this impact your personal life? Mm -hmm. Because all of us who are entrepreneurs have other commitments in life and we all pay lip service to the, the fact that they're the most important things until they're not, you know, and there's so much, there are only so many hours in the day. The stress loads can be immense. It is for me, my, my family can bear the brunt at, at times on that. So I'm not immune to the guidance that I give our clients as well. Um, but I, I think you have to kind of take a holistic approach, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I appreciate that approach because I think sometimes it's um, it's not so much about what we need to put into something if we're willing to put into it um, that amount, but it is the surprise that that's what's going to be required. And so I appreciate that that's a part of your client's journey is if this is your goal, here are your realistic stepping stones to get there. That that's, does sound like right. a really valuable a really valuable conversation. Okay, so we're on that journey. We've we've got you in place, and you're talking to us about you know we've got our, our what what do we want? Why do we want it? What does it take to get there? Um, how long does this relationship usually last to get to that next point? Um, you know, I, I would answer it this way. Um, we we want to help our clients. Um learn how to build a better business and we want them to be confident in the business that they're operating we do not want their business success or their personal success to be in any way dependent upon us um and that's i'm not trying to be holier than thou or anything with this but one of the problems um that dewalker and i kind of or one of the aspects of the industry that DeWalker and I thought was maybe um, uh, could could I'm trying to be diplomatic could could require a second look would be the fact that a lot of consultants um, work with clients forever and mm -hmm. and what we do in terms of the business principles and the way we operate and the guidance we give we're trying to um, accelerate a, a client's body of business knowledge and create a level of confidence in them that they can operate the business successfully and and frankly work ourselves out of a job you know mm -hmm. we we fa the way we tend to work with clients and it's a pretty intense relationship at times but i would say our average client engagement lasts somewhere between about 12 and 18 months depending on where they are in their journey depending on what their goals are, depending on what they want to achieve and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, I, there's some that we stay on longer uh, and there's some that we work with uh, for, for less time than that. Um, mm -hmm. And that's okay. But our, our goal is not to be uh, engaged with a client indefinitely or forever, at least not in a consulting relationship. You know, they go through right. different kind of phases <laughs> of business building um, and, and, you know, some of the challenges that they incur, uh, along the way are, you know, how, how, what's the right way to buy and build practices, depending on what your growth strategy is, are you going to acquire them? Or are you going to do a de novo approach and build them from the ground up or a blend of both? Um, you know, are, are you going to build like a, an associate equity model where you hire young associates and allow them to either buy in or earn into the business and what are the mm -hmm. different facets of that and depending upon how quickly you want to grow like i mentioned in the onset our our clients are all using bank funds to grow and, and mm -hmm. that is the right choice beyond a, ch a shadow of a doubt um even with rates increasing, uh, debt funds are the right way to build businesses in the, in the emerging phase. But the banks that they probably start out with 
have limitations around the credit box that the bank works in at the inception when the when the dentist buys his or her first or second practice. They probably need to transition to a different um, uh, different lending relationship with a, a bank, but it would be like a lower middle market bank or a middle market bank that would allow for um, a greater growth facility. It's like you and I having a credit card. You know, if you go to if you go to a, a grocery store or a you know a, the mall or something, and you're pushing around a shopping cart and you fill it full of stuff, you know, and you go to check out, and then you have to say, well, let me call the bank and see how much stuff I can buy here. Like that would mm-hmm. be crazy. We would never do that, right? You you have a credit card with a credit limit and you know what the limit is and you can spend up to that limit if you want to. Well, mm-hmm. when we do debt recapitalization services for clients, it's that exact scenario. You know, they they don't spend cash anymore out of their checking account because they know that's a finite resource. They spend credit on a credit card just uh, to draw an analogy, and they know mm. the amount of capital they can draw from a bank on an annual basis. They know how long it takes to get a an acquisition approved, and it's usually about 30 days, and they know how often that uh, credit limit refreshes. So now mm-hmm. they can go source practices to buy because they know they have a, a lending commitment in place versus finding a practice to buy and saying, God, I hope the bank will fund it. You know, so it's, you know, that that debt recapitalization is another service that we offer. And these could be services kind of along the client journey, if you want to call it that. Mm -hmm. Um, So some people engage us for different things at different points in time. But we want to be a, you know, a multifaceted solution for a lot of the people who are building these groups, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that. That makes so much sense to have everything out in front of you before you start making decisions. And you touched on some growth strategies, but I know that's a big component of what you help strategize. And so um, what are some of those different areas that you might discover with your client? Yeah, you know, I think um, if you're, you can kind of break it down between, you know, there, there are probably three. One, one would be acquiring practices. Two would be building practices from the, the dirt up, you know, or, or a shell out. Um, and then the third might be um, merging entities, you know. And so I think the, the thing that gets people into trouble um, in the acquisition game um, is that they, they get impatient, for lack of a better term. Um, mm-hmm. And... You know, dentists are, are healthcare providers by nature. They're not directors of business development. And and when you start talking about acquiring another practice, just because it's a practice that comes on the market for sale doesn't necessarily mean you should buy it. And if you talk to the people who run enterprise level DSOs and their, their business development offices, you quickly find out that they take a swing at only about 10 to 20% of the practices that come across their radar. And the reason mm-hmm. for that is they're very disciplined about what they won't buy. And this is sort of, if you, if you played baseball growing up or, or something like that, these are, the, these are the pitches not to swing at. You know, that's how you strike out. You're reaching for a pitch. It's out of the strike zone. You know, it's, it's something that, that you shouldn't take a cut at. And so mm-hmm. what we find is that people either acquire practices that don't mesh with their culture or don't mesh with their systems and processes or their philosophies, um, or they overpay for them, mm-hmm. or a- after they've acquired them, they can't either get the cost reductions or the revenue generation out of them to make it more profitable to, to, to allow them to cover the debt service payment. So okay. any combination of that in, in acquisitions um, creates massive problems and it, it, it manifests itself in kind of that scenario I alluded to earlier. Like I, I own, you know, three times as many practices as I did before and I'm making half as much income. How's that possible? Mm-hmm. You know, well, mm-hmm. you know, exactly what I just described. And then, you know, on the, the Novo or the startup, if they're going to, you know, if you're a pediatric dentist, I mean, you can, 
there's a new school or a housing development nearby, you can drive a pediatric practice, a new pediatric practice in just about anywhere you want. It's like printing money the next day. Not really, but <laughs> you know, the, the challenge with, uh, with people who are, who are doing the de novo, the, the, um, the build side of, uh, growth is that they don't really understand how to, how to quantify success with it. Um, mm-hmm. and by that, I mean, it takes a, whatever the investment is to start the business, the, the build out, the working capital, the hiring of the staff, the uh, equipment and technology, the supplies on and marketing on and on and on, you know? And so when you make that investment in a de novo, um, the, the answer to making it successful is not hoping and praying, right? Mm -hmm. I just hope we get patient number one to walk through the front door no, you need, you need to understand, you know, how the bank lends money once again on a de novo. What are the metrics they're looking for to lend you money on a second or a third de novo? Well, mm-hmm. they they want to make sure that you're generating enough profitability and cash flow, not only to offset the debt service payments, but also to be within some leverage ratio that's predefined. So when you know mm-hmm. how the bank lends money in a de novo and you know your um, patient acquisition costs and your average value of a new patient, now you can start to kind of do the math behind, okay, it cost me $500,000 to build this thing. I know what leverage ratios I need to be within uh, to satisfy the bank. I know my cost to acquire a patient and how much they typically generate in my practice in the first year. Now I can solve for the number of new patients I need and the revenue that I need to generate. And then mm-hmm. it becomes a little bit more formulaic of, of working the process to understand this, how everything is interconnected with it. And when you do that, you can start doing de novos more repeatedly at scale with better systems and processes. And oh, by the way, you're cross-pollinating your people from a successful practice into a new practice and the culture translates and the brand has continuity between locations and all these great things about the de novo concept in and of itself. But you are a little bit more like I'm sorry to use this term, like a McDonald's in this concept, because the box is the same. The operating process is the same. You're connected to all the numbers. You can course correct accordingly. And and when you do that, your success isn't guaranteed, but you can you can kind of see it happening before it happens. So, you know, working with clients on how they acquire practices, how they identify them, how they size up the potential in them, you know, how they, you know, integrate them into the business, as well as on a de novo standpoint, you know, how they model out that investment to a level of success within 12 months, so they can keep mm-hmm. doing it over and over is, is critically important. And then the third piece I mentioned, the merger concept is, is one, whether it's a, an adjacent geography that you might merge two businesses together, so it's complementary fit, or it could be something like a pediatric group and an orthodontic group merging together. So it's like complementary right. service offerings. You know, how do you how do you do a cap table merger? If your business is worth 10 million and mine's worth 20 million, but I've got five partners and you're the sole owner of yours. And, you know, how much debt is yours carrying and how much is ours carrying? And, you know, what is if we merge the business, who's going to lead this thing? Like who who owns <laughs> what share of it? And you've been the queen of the kingdom and I've been the king of the kingdom. So how are we going to get along and play in the sandbox together? Those are those are tricky, <laughs> but um, yeah. but we do a lot of that, too. And, you know, if, if given the right opportunity, it can be accretive to, to uh, value and valuation really, really quickly. So. Wow. And make the process so much more enjoyable because I have a business background, but the way you're so I understand what you're saying, but it is not the way I think I would have thought about it or approached it. I wouldn't have all the pieces in front of me, the way that you're laying them out to make a really um, conscious and aligned decision for a long-term game plan that has the outcome I'm looking for. So gosh, I can definitely see the value of having an advisor with this type of game plan in place. Um, Talk to me a little bit about the current M&A markets. They're frothy, (laughs) Um, you know, um, 
so I think, um, you know, last year, I, I think it's kind of important to rewind the tape a little bit because, um, you know, pre-pandemic, uh, dentistry was a, 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 it's always, healthcare services has always been in the top three sectors uh, in terms of private equity and interest. And it's been that way for multiple decades and it's not going to mm -hmm. change next year, you know? So mm -hmm. healthcare services is, is a, a really popular space where there's a lot of value creation opportunity um, for, for, you know, putting cap the right capital to the right use uh, and generating the right returns. Dentistry mm -hmm. is arguably still um, the most popular uh, space within all of healthcare services. Um, so I think what we saw uh, globally on M&A going into uh, COVID was quite a challenge because it was all pencils down. When the businesses returned, um, nobody knew what the revenue streams were going to be. Nobody knew how to forecast profitability from there. Would they mm -hmm. return to 100% levels or, or less or more due to pent-up demand? You know, what, what would happen? Um, and, and it was tough for people to really understand, okay, I'm, I'm still interested in this space, but I have no idea how to value it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so um, what we saw was those businesses that um, transacted shortly after uh, or during or shortly after COVID were um, too far in that the, the acquirer had invested too much money in due diligence um, to back out of it. And it was still the right uh, acquisition at the right time. Um, then, but during uh, 2020, um, you had sort of the perfect storm as we turned into 2021. Um, you had uh, people in the business development offices of private equity groups or enterprise level DSOs that were forced to sit on the sidelines for a year um, mm -hmm. because there was no activity. Um, and that's like having a bunch of like uh, hungry dogs in their cage that you haven't fed for a long time. They get motivated to do deals and a lot of their incentive comp is equity based for value creation. And when there's mm -hmm. no transactions, they're not making bonuses, they're not making money and they're a little bit upside down on their equity. So all of a sudden the market comes back and you release the hounds like, you know, Smither or as, as Mr. Burns would say on the Simpsons, you know, release the hounds. <laughs> um, you release the hounds into the marketplace and you give them dirt cheap cost of, of capital because the Fed funds rate was all but zero. So borrowing mm -hmm. rates and using debt leverage was you know, free for lack, mm -hmm. not really, but, closest thing to it right and then the third thing was you had a change politically in the administration with a totally different bent on what taxes were going to be um especially around um uh long-term cap gains uh which was a significant motivator to the people who'd built successful businesses to sell those businesses and avoid a 20 percent delta on the tax impact you put all that into a blender, turn it on high and put the lid on it. And you got what we got in 2021. Right. And, uh -huh. and globally, it was the most incredible year for M&A that the world's ever seen. So coming out of that, where do we find ourselves? Well, you know, maybe the government overheated the economy a little bit. Like who knew three rounds of stimulus, you know, we got inflation. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I can't spell economics and I probably could have told you that. Right. But so, so we got that piece plus we got the piece that um, due to the volume of M&A activity, there has to be some period of integration or um, digesting of the businesses that you've acquired, right? Mm -hmm. Like you, it, you, the, the hard work happens on the operational side after we spike the football and talk about the transaction. But then you have like, right. how do the businesses actually integrate into the core business? And are we getting cost synergies and revenue generation and all the other promise of, of bigger, more efficient businesses? That doesn't happen overnight. And so what you saw in the first half of the year is that there were a lot of enterprise level DSOs that acquired a lot of businesses and they were having to sort through all of them, you know, and, mm -hmm. and literally the ops teams were saying, we got to pump the brakes, guys. We can't just keep 
buying more businesses. Somebody's got to do the hard work. And the volume of businesses that were sold in, in the last year kind of cleaned out a lot of those that were were ready to exit. So this year, M&A activity has been um, down comparatively, but it's like coming off of an all-time high. Does that mean the market is down? No. Does it mean that valuation multiples and strategies and opportunities are down? Absolutely not. We just closed a pretty major transaction on Monday of this week with a orthodontic group in Florida and a, a, a well-regarded and well-known private equity group um, that's going to be a great story of version 2.0 for both of them. And I can't wait to see it happen. So, you know, the the best businesses are still commanding the highest premium from the most qualified buyers. And, and that's going to be the way it is for, for quite a while. Now, lending rates are going up, um, but private equity groups and private equity backed uh, enterprise level groups are, are still awash in cash. Um, and it's just a matter of how they want to deploy that cash if they're not going to use as much uh, debt leverage to do it. So, you know, the I think the other aspect of this is the um, the supply side, which was the the people who were trying to sell their businesses before potentially there was going to be an income uh, rate uh, impact, and mm-hmm. and that is those that are operating successful businesses right now. They have a real um, uh, decision to kind of make on their hands. Are they going to continue to build their businesses and chase more EBITDA and more locations and and reach a higher level of valuation at some point in the future, a year or two, sometime down the road? Or do they take a second look and say, "I I could probably create a greater outcome financially for me and my family if I did a transaction now and we're able to grow the business more quickly with the backing of a private equity group versus using debt funds and doing it on my own. And I think that's kind of a, a secondary inflection point where we see ourselves and, and what you're going to, you're going to see more M&A act activity through the balance of the calendar year. Uh, and we think there's still a good couple of years to go on that. And and I think that that's the kind of the challenging one when we, when we, talk with a prospective client on the sell side advisory side of our business and they say should I go to market now or should I wait it's not an easy answer we kind of need to get under the hood and find out what again what that entrepreneur wants where they're situated now what the uh, potential upsides are that he or she can create versus some of the known entities that we know in the industry on what they could collaborate on Mm -hmm. so it's a it's a deeper answer. Sorry to go a little long, wonky and long-winded on that, but um, it's complicated. No, it's perfect. I guess. Yeah, no, it it has to be. Otherwise, otherwise, like you said, it'd just be McDonald's. What? Um, before I let you go, what other components have I not asked you about that you feel like would be important for this conversation? Um, I think we could take just a quick second and talk about the uh, associate uh, conundrum because that mm-hmm. um, is still the biggest problem in any group, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, two locations or 1,502 locations, you know, the, the turnover uh, of associates is, is still the, I think the biggest problem or the biggest challenge, let me put it that way, mm-hmm. of, of building a group. And, um, you know, I, I think from, from our perspective, we believe that um, dentists are to a great degree, entrepreneurially minded, and they're predisposed to want to be owners, uh, to have a a seat at the table, to have a stake in the outcome, to have a say, a voice to be heard. You know, that a lot of people advocated that they go to dental school versus going to medical school where they would end up being part of a hospital network, you know? And and I think Mm -hmm. there's something to be said there. And so when you talk about building a group and building it through associates, it's not just a matter of plugging a gap. I mean, I'm sure you see this in some of the work that you do with clients where if the culture isn't strong, there's less adhesion across the board, associates and staff alike. But when you talk about associates, you need to have a holistic solution. And the holistic solution begins on the recruiting side of it. So what makes you different in your group practice, dental practice, or, or whatever, than, than anybody else who's 
trying to attract that associate. So, mm -hmm. you know, what, why are you different? And it can't be a clinical compensation rate, right? Because that's fungible. It's gotta be something more than that. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, it's how do you differentiate yourself at the point of recruiting? The second thing is if they do say yes, and they are going to come work for you, what is their first, you know, couple of weeks to couple of months look like? This could be their first job, or they mm -hmm. could be spinning out of an associateship that failed. So they're coming into it with a degree of anxiety that they're not going to tell you about. So how do you get inside their mind and say, look, we think we built a really good group. Here's what working for us looks like. Here's what your first week to two weeks to 12 weeks is going to look like on the job. Here's your onboarding plan. I mean, I hate to say it, this is kind of corporate America, right? I mean, you create clarity for an associate and if they can see themselves being successful in it, then they're more apt to say, okay, that feels comfortable and I want to be a part of it. And then the third piece is development. Again, most associates are young. They may be out of school or residency or out of a, their first failed associateship, but they want to be a master at their craft. You know, they want to learn more expanded clinical procedures and they want to, they want to get better. So who's their mentor? And the first two or three years working with you, what are, what are investments you're going to make in them time-wise mm -hmm. and financially to say at the end of your second year, you ought to be able to know how to do X, Y, and Z procedures. And in the third year, we're going to teach you how to do A, B, and C, you know, and now they see themselves improving and getting better. And if they do more complicated dentistry, they're going to earn more income. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a, a closed in solution in terms of doctor development, clinical skill development. And then the last piece is, hey, if you fit with the culture, if you take good care of the staff and the patients, and if you're a team player, here's how you become a partner. We have mm -hmm. a buy in methodology or an earn in methodology where you can earn equity in the business. You can become a partner. You can own part of the company. You know, you can sit at the table with us and help us grow it. You, you have a, um, a vested interest in the outcome we're all creating. And that partnership track can be a, a, a buy-in, if that's the right thing, or it could be a, an earned-in model. We have a couple called profits, interest units, and restricted stock units that are, I won't bore your audience with that, at least not verbally, but you can find out more stuff on our <laughs> website on it. But, you know, it's, there, there are ways for an associate to earn real equity in a business without actually having to buy it, because they're all carrying like 300 grand worth of debt, you know, so they, right. they may not want to buy in right away, but they want to, they want to be an owner in the business. So if you can, if you can solve for the recruiting, onboarding, development, and partnership track as a holistic solution, you can build a world beater business that will attract associates to come work for you, not just when you have one of them quit and you got to go recruit them. Really, and it hits home with what you were talking about early on about, you know, from this perspective, it's the founder, the CEO having clarity around what exactly am I building? And, um, and then just being really straightforward with that, because uh, you don't actually want the wrong associates, and you don't want a reputation of attracting people and then not delivering on what they thought they were getting. Um, and some of that's going to be the associates asking the right questions. Some of that's going to be the presentation of the opportunity. But I love what you're saying here, and I find it so, so valuable, um, because then in the end, we're trying to create that unity. We're trying to create that um, adhesiveness you spoke about. Um, and the only way to do that is to have the right people with the right organization. Yeah. You know, culture matters, or, I mean, I, I think it should, um, you know, and, and the, <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe it depends on who you ask, but I, so I know. Well, for attention that, matters, culture matters. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, build, building a business that, that plans for 10 to 20% turnover is, <laughs> it's not a business I want to build. Let me put it that way. Right. But I, you know, I think if you're clear about that uh, and, and not to be, um, not to overgeneralize things, but for millennials, um, it matters a lot. And, and, you know, we've, we've hired a handful of younger um, uh, people on our data and analytics team. And, in the interview process, I usually get to them in, at sort of the tail end of the interview process. Um, and 
two of them recently on separate occasion asked me, how would you describe the culture of Polaris? And, mm-hmm. and I kind of thought, you know, good on you for asking that question and shame on me for not being proactive in telling you, mm-hmm. you know, and, and yeah. it matters to them, even if it doesn't matter to you. And that that's a broad generalization that your audience can take to the bank. But if you build a, a business with a tighter, more um, contiguous culture and, and you retain associates, it's better for continuity of care with patients for sure. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. also much better for continuity of cash flows. And, and that's the business you're trying to build. Absolutely. You know, when I'm talking to people who are either who have left a job or are considering leaving a job, um, by and large, if I were to summarize what is the collective concern, it's my perception of my experience at work, which can be really clarified on the forefront. Yeah, it's it's scary, right? It's not what mm-hmm. you did to them is what they perceived. Yeah, right. Um, right. Yeah. That. Uh, Corporate America is rife with that, too. (laughs) (laughs) Very much. Well, listen, if people want to learn more, you've said so many good things. I'm sure sparked a lot of interest and raised a lot of eyebrows on some things that um, they're going to want to know more about. How do we get in touch with Polaris? Well, thanks for the opportunity to be with you and your audience today. I I truly appreciate it. Um, uh, So our website is www.polaris.com polarishealthcarepartners.com. I like to say that we, when we were launching the business, we searched for the longest unclaimed URL and I think we found <laughs> it. So, um, but Polaris Healthcare, yeah, polarishealthcarepartners.com. Um, you can learn a lot more about us, uh, all the, the things we do, uh, where, where we'll be appen- uh, appearing, you know, speaking events and things like that. Um, we have a podcast ourselves called Group Practice Accelerator. Um, and, and a lot of the stuff we talked about today, we talk about on there, it's, it's pretty good business information. It's granular. It's a little bit wonky, but you know, people tend to like it. Um, so, uh, (laughs) and and then there's also a place where they can book a call with me off the website. If they want to talk about anything one-on-one or want to dig into any, you know, aspect of their business, I, I probably take between five and 10 prospective client calls a week. So, you know, happy, happy to share time, um, whenever and wherever I can. Great. Well, thank you so much, Perrin. This was actually very educational for me as well. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure being with you. Really, I look forward to it, Chelsea. Congratulations on the business you built as well and look forward to having you on our show at some point too. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. I appreciate you joining me for today's episode. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit dentallife.coach for access to additional coaching tools, as well as more episodes to help you create the dental life you truly desire.